Good afternoon, good evening. This is Dove Tuzman, and you're back on Equal Footing. Trying to make a somewhat controversial topic tonight a little bit less so. You'd be surprised about the common ground around home birth. Not free birth. We'll talk about what it is to have totally kind of unassisted birth at home. That's a thing, too, actually, to not to have any certified professional. We're talking about home birth with certified midwives. Nurse midwives, probably not, although in some states this happens, probably not your doctor, your OBGYN. Why is it controversial? Well, often associated with higher infant mortality rates, general perinatal mortality for the mother as well, Uh, considered by some to be kind of hippy-dippy, radical, not wise. But is that backed up? By the stats, no, there have actually been, over the last 10, 15 years, increasing uh, methodologically um, substantiated studies by Journal of Obstetrics, American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, and other reliable sources. And, it's, and the stats are showing that this is a viable and responsible choice for a lot of women, most women, unless there are specific contraindications. You know, in the U.S., home births have gone up in some states over the last several years by 50%. 2019 to 2021 alone, home births across the United States went up by almost 30%. We'll talk about Europe in a minute. But in North America, and these are off of admittedly small numbers. You're still talking about in the U.S., for, which is, by the way, the lowest uh, number in most in the Western world. Only about 1.25% of births are done at home. But the numbers are going up consistently every year in double digits on a percentage basis. And in some countries in Europe, it's over 30% of women that choose to give birth at home and approaching 50% in some places, including outpatient home birthing centers. This is a thing. It is also increasingly prevalent at higher numbers than the general population within the Orthodox Jewish community. This is not just a show for Jewish people, much less for folks that self-denominate as Orthodox, but I think it's an interesting point as well. In some communities, communities as high as 4%, 4.5%. Okay, we've got two wonderful guests who've come on, not so much to debate the topic, but to give different perspective. Let's start with Dr. Peter Graves. Dr. Graves has been on Equal Footing before. It's been quite a while. such a pleasure to have him back. He has such a mellifluous voice. I get a little uh, jealous, actually. He might take my job one of these days. Dr. Graves is an emergency room doctor and administrator. He attended college at UMass, Massachusetts. He also went to the University of Massachusetts Medical School. He graduated in 1999. Between that year and 2003, he did his residency in emergency medicine in an emergency room, I should say, at Brown University in Rhode Island. Go Brown Bears. I have a little bit of a background there. From 2003 to this day, 
Dr. Graves has worked in multiple emergency departments, various sizes, from both a clinical and administrative perspective. He's currently the chief of emergency medicine at a community hospital in, in Rhode Island. He also has an MBA from the University of Massachusetts Eisenberg School of Business. So he brings kind of the business of medicine perspective too, which is very relevant actually, as you'll see when it comes to this topic. Dr. Graves is married to his wonderful life, wife, Alicia, many years. He has a beautiful 12 year old daughter and a dog. And I should say for disclosure that Dr. Graves and I have known each other for, I think over 40 years. Yes. Over 40 years. Pete, Dr. Graves, welcome back. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thanks for the opportunity. I think my uh, mellifluous uh, voice may be a tad impaired this evening as I, uh, like everyone, uh, suffer from uh, occasional head colds in the winter. Doctors are not impervious to, to illness, unfortunately, but uh, I shall do my best. So I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. The other thing you challenged me with is your vocabulary. So, um, and I'm not, I'm not impervious to, uh, to, to jealousy on that count either. Okay. Enough of inside baseball. I want to introduce a new guest to Equal Footing. I hope we'll have her on again. Uh, she has such a wealth of experience in this area. Jan Wolfenberg. Jan discovered her calling to work in childbirth during her first pregnancy in 1978. And from that time forward, while also having and raising her own children, she's a, she attended, start attending, started attending various workshops and training courses, ultimately became certified in childbirth education and labor assistance. Her certification in these areas were through the Association of Labor Assistants and Childbirth Educators. And after her two own home births in 1983 and 1987, Jan made the decision to become a midwife and began pursuing an education toward that end, mainly through independent study. And she's now completed, many years ago now, completed the certification process of the North American Registry of Midwives and received the certification as a certified professional midwife, a CPM, in September of 2001, over 20 years ago. Jan has been attending birth since 1992. She's been a practicing uh, primary midwife. You'll hear about how this works with different assistants to the midwives, etc. since 2000. And to date, Jan has shepherded over 1,000 births in various capacities. Jan, welcome to Equal Footing. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Dove. Thanks for asking me. Before we, we had a little bit of a pregame talk, you guys are so busy doing such wonderful work in your, in your lives that you both had to give that caveat. Dr. Graves, you know, God forbid you might have had, you know, an emergency that pulled you away. Jan it would have been wonderful for someone else, but it's so great for the show. If you had been pulled away for a birth, that could still happen mid show. Who knows? I really appreciate you both uh, being on. I know Joan Didion said that the only thing worse than a lie is, is a statistic. But I do want to get your reaction to a couple of these statistics. Uh, Dr. Graves, it's clear that across the Western world, and it, probably across the world as a whole, but we just don't have as good data from the, from the emerging world, economically, that's uh, speaking. Across the Western world, home birth is on the rise. And it seems that there's an, there's an understanding from some of the traditional medical research sources that as long as you don't have the major contraindications, things like the position of the baby not being, the fetus not being in the right position, the fact that there have been prior cesarean births, if you have uh, multiple gestation, you know, twins, et cetera. Other than those common contraindications, broadly speaking, it's on the rise. What's your reaction to that as an allopathic physician? 
Yeah, I guess I guess I question some of those statistics a little bit. Um, I, I think if you if you look at the literature on this topic, you'll find that the COVID nineteen pandemic certainly had an effect on um, the frequency of home births, and I, I think we can all relate to the fact that um, there was a uh, either a real or a perceived sense that hospitals were overwhelmed, uh, full of sick patients with COVID nineteen. Um, lack of access to healthcare, and as a result, I, the, the incidents did rise for sure uh, during the years that you mentioned uh, at the opening. Um, but I think that a lot of that has been attributed to the COVID nineteen um, pandemic, and I, I also understand that the, the incidence is actually falling in some parts of the world, including in, in Europe. You mentioned European countries, and you know the Netherlands has always been a, a country where home births are quite prevalent. Um, and back twenty thirty years ago. Uh, my understanding is that 30% or more of women actually chose to to, to have um, have a child in the home setting, but that's actually been decreasing about a percentage point a year. And the Netherlands is probably the highest has the highest incidence of home births in, in all of Europe, and it's down around 14% this year. And most other European countries are in the single digits. And in the U.S., as I believe you mentioned, it's down around one percent or so. And so while it may be increasing slightly here and there. Um, I think overall, most of that recent increase has been attributed to the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, interesting. The, the COVID impact is debatable. I'm going to ask our producer, Leah Mesniku, to, to come into the studio in a couple of minutes because she does a lot of our pregame research. And it seems there's there is a real live academic debate on this topic because like a lot of other effects, sociological effects, medical effects from the pandemic, some are enduring. Others go kind of rubber band back to where they were and other things in terms of work habits and even self-care habits and uh, and the way people approach medical care, it seems like there are enduring changes. Uh, we'll come back to those stats in a minute. Very interesting. Jan, I, I want to, I don't want to give you too much of a softball here, but I want to make sure we we hit some of the the, the latent bias that exists around around home birth. There's a general sense that uh, it's more dangerous, to put it bluntly. And what some of these control studies seem to show, I mentioned some of those sources earlier, is that it's actually safer if you don't have a contraindication. Uh, and so we'll talk about there's all sorts of like selection bias issues in these, in these studies. What's your, what's your, if you can, the most balanced view as possible on that generic question when someone comes into your office is, is this safe for me? Right. Um, yeah, I get that question a lot. And there's been a lot of studies on the safety of home birth. It clearly needs to be women who are normal, having a normal pregnancy, who are low risk, who are appropriate for out-of-hospital birth. Um, the studies are all over the place. Some of them were done by more medical organizations, and they have their own bias. And then, of course, it can go on the other side, too, people who are really biased toward a more natural birth might have a different perspective. But the data is pretty convincing that for normal low-risk women, out-of-hospital birth is a safe option if they have an experienced and trained provider. So there's a study on this from a, a few years ago, Jan, that's right, let me put this to both of you. Let's start with you, Jan, mm -hmm. that um, that's gotten a lot of a lot of pickup, even in general media, Reuters and NBC and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, it was uh, run by uh, uh, Dr. Amos uh, Grunbaum, uh, sponsored by the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, mm -hmm. and it compared U.S. to to Europe. 
and this is important for this subject, in case we have listeners are going, would you stop talking about the stats? The reason we're leading with this is that there are countries that are doing this a lot more than we are, and I think there's a lot to learn. The And it, it, it showed that on the U.S., in the U.S., you have uh, around, this study was between 2010 and 2017, you had nearly 14 um, stillbirths per 10,000 um, in planned home births in the U.S., which was about four times the rate for babies born in hospitals. So 4X, although off of very low numbers, 4X the likelihood, God forbid, of of, uh, of a stillbirth. Um, but then in European countries, you had almost an, uh, you had no discre- no statistical discrepancy in survival rates for home and hospital births, places like England, the Netherlands, we talked about Germany, Australia, and across, across Western Europe, in fact. And the thesis, actually, Jan, that, that these... Um, these researchers put forward was that in the U S you have negative selection bias where you actually have women that had a cesarean before, maybe a traumatic experience in hospital and now want a vaginal birth after cesarean. Um, and probably are not as well qualified for a home birth. You also have much older women in the U S are choosing often that they can afford to, frankly, because insurance often almost never co- uh, covers home birth. So you have in the U S relative to the other countries, older women, women that had a cesarean before and are just at, at, at higher risk. Do you, d- does that resonate with your view? Do you, do you agree or think this is missing the mark? Well, you don't quite have it right. Um, the, the rate of, okay, so you were mentioning, you were using the word stillbirth, but that's not really what you want, what you're talking about. Because stillborn babies are ones that die in utero. Yeah, pardon me. Yeah, I, I, I misspoke. Right. Trying to pretend right. to be a doctor. So we're talking about perinatal deaths, deaths that occur Correct. in the immediate time around the birth, during the labor or immediately thereafter. Correct. Which is a different statistic entirely. That's, and um, that's the statistic I was quoting. I, I said stillbirth and shouldn't have. Right. Well, a lot of people might have not even caught that, and that's fine, but it doesn't matter. Um, so the studies that have shown... Oh, you, there's so many things you mentioned, and now I'm probably not going to be able to go back and touch them all. But um, one of the things I was thinking about is that the studies that compare, like, Europe to here, they often show that the safest, the safety resides in having a system that supports birth in either setting. So if you go to England... There's a lot of midwives. They do both in hospital and at home births. And if there's a need to transfer, it's easy and non-traumatic, and there's they're accepted in the system. But here, even in states where it's licensed, and 37 states do license my credential, um, you when you take somebody in, there's often negativity, and the experience can be traumatic for both the. Um, provider and patient, what ends up happening is that providers are therefore hesitant to go in, maybe even when they should. Right. And that can happen in a situation where the system supports this option. You don't have to be afraid to take your client in because it's going to be fine. You don't want to have to be, you know, browbeat by people in the system. To Jan's point, Dr. Graves, the, the, this, I'm just going to quote directly from these study authors, says, 
in other high-income countries with established midwifery systems, home birth midwives are well integrated into the healthcare system. This is not true of the United States. Most midwives who oversee home births in the U.S. work without a license that meets standards set by the International Confederation of Midwives, Midwives Global Standards, et cetera. So their, their point is that if we actually integrate home birth more into the medical system, including insurance coverage, it would actually be significantly safer. Do, is this what, what's your perspective? Is this, is this make, is this what's happening? Yeah, I think I agree. Um, there are many other countries that have been doing this far longer and far better than we have in the United States. And we've talked about some of the selection criteria that would designate a woman more or less safe to, uh, to choose a home birth uh, situation. But, but one of the things that we haven't mentioned thus far until now is, is that integration of the medical professional in the home who's attending the home birth with the medical profession in general. Uh, and I agree with Ms. Wolfenberg that, that there are many times when the allopathic physician community and the hospital community, community may be at odds with um, the concept of, of a home birth, and, uh, and there could be a more adversarial or um, contentious relationship between providers at the hospital and um, the home birth attendant, whether it be a midwife or a nurse midwife or others. So I think one of the most important things we as a society could do is, is strive for, for better integration of um, the two sides to that equation, such that if there was a medical emergency that happened, or even if it was just another reason that the attempt at a home birth had to be uh, changed to a hospital setting, um, that that communication between the midwife, for example, and the hospital would be streamlined and efficient and preferably arranged ahead of time. And I could envision a situation where the home birth might be communicated to the hospital ahead of time. Uh, the hospital would need to be a facility that has 24-7 OBGYN services. Uh, perhaps the OBGYN physician could be made aware of the home birth and be ready for any adverse outcomes that might arise. Uh, there could be an ambulance standing by, for example. There's a lot of things that mm. we societally and individual women could do to make this a, a safer choice in the United States. And those are things that are going on in other countries? They are. And, you know, in my brief research now, I, admittedly, I'm not an expert in this situation. I'm an emergency medicine physician, so I've seen lots of terrible things in my day, whether it be newborns or other patients. But, but my understanding is that Washington State does a particularly good job in our country. Uh, but after that, Canada does a better job. And most of the countries across Europe um, have been doing this far longer and far better than we have. Yeah, Jan, we've spoken before the show about some of that, unfortunately, if not adversarial stance, that kind of that certainly that distance and communication between mm -hmm. the Midwest community and the the hospitals. Um, and you kind of can't tell them certain things because uh, you, you, you can enter into um, into muddy waters. We're going to take our first break. We're going to uh, get. We're going to get a little anecdotal. I want to ask both of you about some of your personal experiences in this area. We're talking about home birth and the, the pros and cons um, of this uh, increasingly discussed and, and adopted method of, uh, of delivery. And we're going to talk about the medication aspect of that or the unmedicated, the tendency for unmedicated labor in home birth. Participate in the discussion, the discussion share your stories. Ask your questions to Jan Wolfenberg, who's a midwife who's shepherded over 1,000 births, emergency room doctor and administrator, Dr. Peter Graves, gives us the perspective from the kind of quote-unquote traditional medical approach, the numbers to participate, to call in live, 718-303-9090, 718-303-9090. 
That's 718-303-9090. If you call in, please be patient. Let it ring so we can get you in the studio. And if you want to participate by text or WhatsApp, you can do so with your name or anonymously, 917-428-4062. That's the number to send questions or comments to Dr. Peter Graves and certified professional midwife Jan Wolfenberg, 917-428-4062. We'll be right back. Stream down my So on Equal Footing, we try to tackle topics that sometimes don't get enough airtime from a balanced perspective and are hard to talk about. That's true of erectile dysfunction. It's nothing to be ashamed of. It's actually kind of somewhat connected to tonight's program. <laughs> My producer's laughing at me here. No, it is something that affects almost two-thirds of men in their lifetime. It can affect the emotional well-being. And couples, if you are experiencing erectile dysfunction or your partner is, get help. There are methodologies outside of those expensive blue pills that many people cannot take because of side effects or comorbidities. Well, Manhattan Medical offers a new and effective therapy for ED. It's called Gainswave. It can help you achieve excellent results. It's only new really in the U.S. It's been around in Europe and Canada. It's kind of on theme for tonight as well for a long time. Gaines wave therapy for erectile dysfunction is non-invasive. It's surgery free, no side effects. It's painless and it works for the vast majority of patients. You do not have to be in Manhattan or the New York area. Anywhere in the United States, you can get a telehealth consult and get going with the Gaines wave therapy methodology from Manhattan Medical for ED. I have a friend who used this therapy. He's over 80 years old and it's had, it had immediate and then enduring effects for, for him. If it can work for him, it can work for you. Call for a free consultation, which you only get if you mention that you heard about it on equal footing. That's a $250 value. It's a real value. You won't get it unless you say you heard about it on equal footing. The number to call for gains for Manhattan Medical's gains wave therapy for ED. You ready? 888 888- E-D-Cure-9. That's 888-E-D-Cure-9 and numbers. Manhattan Medical's ED treatment, 888-332-8739. Operators are standing by. Call now one more time, 888-332-8739. I've been caught. You're back with Dr. Peter Graves and Jan Wolfenberg, a midwife with decades of experience. Jan, I hope you don't mind me asking, and we had a little bit of your origin story as a midwife in the intro, but there's a little bit more to that. And I was fascinated to learn this part of the program about your, the, the I guess the, the way you see birth from a, uh, transcendental perspective from a spiritual perspective and your own experience as an adopted child? A lot of times the question I get is why did you become a midwife? And like many midwives, our usual first reason is because we see how it affects women. 
it's about the woman. It's about making her have an empowered experience, not making, allowing, creating an opportunity for her to have an empowered experience because it really changes women and makes her better parents. But I also learned after a while I began to realize that I had another reason that I had gone into this because as an adopted person, I was never, I never knew my mother, my bio mom. I mean, I had parents who adopted me, obviously, and they were great, but my biological mom, I really never, I don't know whether I, she ever even held me. And at birth, there's this amazing hormonal moment when babies and moms are hardwired to fall in love with each other. And obviously I miss that. Um, and I felt like I really want to make that something that I safeguard in the birth experience for for babies because they are coming in as brand new little souls, little spirits from the other side, wherever that is. And that experience for them is, is I want to say it's life-changing. It's, it's established as a lot in their life for the rest of their lives. So that's something that is important to me. And Dr. Graves, we were considering having an, an OBGYN on the program we really wanted to have a little, a broader point of view, talk a little bit of we have already and more, I'm sure about the insurance system and, and get a broader medical perspective, but found out really in the process of planning for the show that you have very direct personal experience with, with home birth. Does that, what, what was that experience and does it affect your view of it as a physician? <laughs> Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to happy to share that story. So, so you know, one might think that as a as an allopathic physician, as an ER doctor, I might be you know jaded and and, and biased and and very much pro uh, the medical community. And, and in many ways, I would say that's true. But I do think my own perspective has been colored, as most people's perspectives are, by by my personal experience. And so, I actually have a younger brother who's 12 years my junior, um, who was born at home. Um, and I, I vividly recall this, this may be more than, more than your, uh, listenership might want to hear, but when I was an awkward, uh, 11 or 12 year old preteen, uh, young boy, uh, my parents, I'll never forget this. They broke the news to me that they were unexpectedly pregnant. Um, and that in and of itself was a shock to me. Um, I recall, uh, I think I threw myself off the chair I was sitting in and because I had a pediatrician at the time who uh, was, was very adamant about educating his patients about sexually transmitted infections and unwanted um, conception and you know birth control methods and so forth, I think I shouted at them, how could you be so irresponsible? At 12. So that was awkward <laughs> at age 12. So that, that in and of itself was awkward. And then, you know, eight months go by, nine months go by, and they informed me that they intended to uh, have my younger brother at home. So to add insult to injury, um, I, uh, I had the opportunity to be at home when my, my mother uh, gave birth to my younger brother, um, and I was tasked with not only timing contractions, uh, but also making calls to relatives when the moment came that my younger brother was born. So um, that, that has probably always colored my experience uh, one way or the other, but it's something I shall certainly so never forget. And we, you know, you were thankfully, my younger brother is alive and well and healthy and happy. Amen. You're, you were actually physically present at the birth. Uh, I was physically present uh, across several closed doors and about as far away from the bedroom as I could possibly be. Yeah, I, 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 I think we've spoken about this in the personal side of life, but I got you trumped on that one. I, I my younger brother, as I think you, you may remember, was also born at home. I have four younger siblings, and I was 
there at the birth. And I guess what would I have been 15? Um, that was a lot. <laughs> I'll get into, to what happened there in a moment, but Jan, when you get the question of who should be present, is that, is that a question you get from prospective home birth mothers? What do you say? Oh yeah. That's a common question. And if, if it's people who have other children, that's a different question than people who are asking about like, who should I invite to my birth? Um, there's no should, of course, it's their birth, they get to choose. But when people have other children, um, I just advise them that they should have another person there, who, uh, adult, who is responsible for the child or children, the older kids. Mm-hmm. And I think that before about two and a half, kids are just too young to really get it. But after that, if they're well prepared, they can do just fine. Yeah. it's uh, And what about what about the doula? What's the relationship between the midwife and the doula? A doula is a professional labor support person. She is not a medical provider. Her job is to rub your back and your shoulders and read with you and remind you that you're doing well and give you ideas for how to handle the difficulties of labor. And your midwife is your medical care provider. She's in charge of making sure that medically you and baby are fine throughout the pregnancy and the labor. So in the in the hospital environment, Dr. Graves, you have the obstetrician and you have uh, nurses supporting and then Jan in the home environment, you have a midwife and a doula or a midwife and a, and a midwife's assistant. Did I get that right? Yeah. Okay. Now I'm going to ask our producer Leah to get from behind the glass and come out here because I know this is very personal to her. This has been a personal journey of, uh, of, of choice. I won't give away what her choice ended up being, but um, so you'll give her a minute to get, uh, installed here at the, at the mic. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious as to what were the main factors for you as you weighed whether to have a baby at, at, at in a hospital setting or at home? Wow. Do you wait to have me on this? I know I told you, you're going to do, you were going to look at the stats. To, <laughs> Not to personal Dr. at Graves's all. Point. <laughs> Um, my journey, although I won't give the answer was about, um, empowerment was about being, feeling empowered to make the choice that I want to make, um, in a setting that I feel comfortable and healthy and safe. Uh, and I think that does uh, increase your chances of having a better relationship with your child. I mean, nothing is written in stone. That is not a hard fact, but I think it does increase the, that chance. So the, the, the Mayo Clinic a few years ago did a, did a study on why people choose planned home birth. And what you just mentioned was definitely one of them, uh, the desire to have more control or more empowerment in the process. Um, Dr. Graves and Jan, one of the other, I won't give away all the reasons, but one of the top reasons also is people's dissatisfaction with prior hospital care and prior birth experiences. How often is that a major factor, Jan? Uh, yeah, it's a factor often. I mean, people who have had a baby before, yeah, they, they often say they didn't have a good experience the last time and they want to have a better one. That absolutely is, is something. There's a lot of other reasons that people do give, um, you know, costs sometimes actually, um, safety, just that they want to have a natural birth, 
Um, they want to have a more spiritual atmosphere. Some people want to have water birth, and they think they can't do that in the hospital, which is sometimes true. Although Some in these birthing afraid. centers, increasingly you can choose to do water births and other positions in the birth, right? Yeah, but you've got to not, find not really. <laughs> I mean, that's what they say, not what they do. I see. So really, if you want to do a water birth, you're, you're, you're better off going with a well, home birth. Depending on where you live, there are there are birth centers that many places. Where I am, there are none in this part of Pennsylvania. Another so, major factor, in fact, I said I wasn't giving it away, but let, we don't have, this is, there's so much we could talk about. This was the number one reason, according to this Mayo Clinic study, that uh, was that women chose to give a, to have a planned home birth. I keep saying planned home birth because obviously you can have a home birth that happens that you didn't need to have because the labor is going so quickly and you can't get to the hospital. But for planned home birth, it was was a desire to give birth without medical intervention, mainly pain medication or having labor induction. Um, so, Dr. Graves, if you if you were talking to a, to, a, to a patient or a friend that was where that was their main reason, how do you how do you feel about that? Someone saying, "I want to do home birth because I I don't want to have pain medication. I don't want to be induced." Yeah, I think that that opens up into a, a pretty broad conversation. So we we mentioned earlier about. Um, how many women prefer to give birth at home for a variety of reasons, and also the resources that are available in each environment, be it home or in a hospital. Certainly in a hospital, there's all the equipment one might need in the event of an unexpected complication of, of the birth, whether it be for the mother or, or for the baby. And so I think a lot of this comes down to uh, the woman's comfort with that risk. And we mentioned at the outset that the risk of complications with with birth is around one percent or less so how comfortable are you as a, as a as a new mother with that risk and what if something goes wrong and we also kind of touched a little bit on you know what happens if something does go wrong whether it's seriously wrong or whether it's simply too much pain for example because jan correct me if i'm wrong but typically, um, in a home birth situation, you know, IV pain medications are not being given. There's, of course, no opportunity for an epidural uh, form of anesthesia uh, for a relatively pain-free birth. Of course, there's no operating room. Uh, there's no obstetrician. There's no adjunctive devices for um, assisting birth or augmenting labor if that's indicated. And, and those are all things that can, in fact, be necessary in some births to facilitate a safe outcome. The contrapoint to that, of course, is that when women are in the hospital, sometimes those things get done and maybe they didn't need to get, be done. And so there's certainly a higher incidence of interventions in the hospital setting, whether it be necessary or thought to be necessary, but perhaps not necessary. So these yeah. are the kind of things that I, I think a, a, a mother has to balance when making that decision. There's an increasing awareness around this issue of of inducing um, or you know, accelerating labor or or in, inducing uh, having to do with doctors not wanting to spend as much time or saving you know say, saving um, you know logistically and this type of thing, getting increasing awareness around this. Um, Dr. Graves, before I go to to, to Jan again, do you, is that real? Do you think that there's are situations where um, mother will be in, in the hospital and, and and be you know getting pain medication when they really don't? They don't need it, and it's kind of like an issue of let's have this baby while 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 I'm on shift type of thing from the doctor's perspective. <laughs> um, well, I think I, I, I think uh, like all other humans, doctors are of course human, and and so d d might 
decisions get made sometimes that are for physician convenience or, or hospital convenience. I suppose that's certainly possible. I've certainly seen situations in my career where that's true, not necessarily related to childbirth, but, but to other things. So could I envision a situation at 2 o'clock in the morning when the, the tired obstetrician wants to go home and, and make the medical decision that, that might um, hasten or, or augment labor? I, I suppose that could happen. Um, I would like to think that it doesn't. I would like to think that all physicians uh, behave in a way that is um, most congruent with, with a good outcome and patient safety, but, but sometimes that's not the case. It could be very traumatic. Because some listener will help me. There's a TV show right now. I think it's on Netflix where the, there's a lot about the trauma of of this. A, a woman who's um, there's like a her water is is, is broken. Where she didn't ask for it to be. To anyway, this is in the popular zeitgeist sure. right now. At uh, Jan, yeah, that's, well, that, that's actually, happened, one, one, uh, sorry, yeah. one more point. I, I, I think that. Um, you know, if some of those if some of those adverse outcomes happen, let let's say um, you know some signs of, of, of fetal distress, that the safer place to be is in is in the hospital setting. Because I'm a pop culture fan, I uh, I have so many references to make. There's actually a, a movie called Pieces of a Woman that uh, is about a home birth gone wrong, and. It won many awards, including the best Oscar for the main actress. And then equally, there is a documentary called The Business of Being Born that is equally impactful about basically why home birth is a safe choice. Now, these two are complete extremes. And do you find that these representations in popular media kind of skew listener, uh, skew viewer um, perspectives or, or patient at all? perspectives or patient yeah. perspectives. Yeah. Great question for you, Jan. Um, I haven't had anybody talk to me about the movie. And when I tried to watch it, I had to turn it off. I couldn't, like, I couldn't go there. <laughs> which um, one, which one of the two movies? The pieces of a woman. I, yeah. I got, yeah. you know, when I real, I saw what was happening, I knew where it was going and I'm like, no, I just, I can't. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but, uh, business of being born has been around about 15 years and they've done other ones since then. And there are another, a number of other good movies on the market, like, or yeah, documentaries like that. And I, they definitely affect my clients when they come in, many of them, you know, when I say, so why do you want to have a home birth? They, <laughs> this documentary. And so, yeah, I do think that that does affect they're realize it helps them realize they have a choice. Yeah, and I guess you wouldn't know because they wouldn't come to you if they saw some other piece of cinematography. Right. And th- they chose not to. And thank you to David and Muncie who told me it's Fleischman is in trouble. Fleischman's in trouble is the, yes. is the, is the uh, show, a very popular show that at the root of it is the trauma of um, induced medical, labor. Induced labor. Uh, so, Jan, we, Dr. Graves covered that, but I. I, I I want to know your patients that come in that have had this negative experience before in hospital. How often it is, is it that I, I was, I got an epidural. I was told to have an epidural. I didn't need it yet. Or I had labor was induced. I wish it wouldn't have been. I had a cesarean when I, we could have waited longer, which to me as a man, I don't have that, the direct experience, but that just sounds life alteringly traumatic. And I'm wondering how, how much of, how prevalent do you think these experiences are in your uh, anecdotal experience? Yeah, I don't have any stats for you, but I would say each of those circumstances you described occur 
differently. So I don't find very many times that women feel like they were bullied into getting pain relief. So to me who've had an epidural or narcotic pain relief in the past, and they're, con- they're a little concerned about whether they're going to be able to do it without. That's a more common response that I get. Um, mm. Z-backs or vaginal uh, cesareans, um, I don't find too often that I think people had an unnecessary cesarean. It, but, of course, I don't always have all of the data from that labor to know how necessary it really was. Yeah, the the document. It's interesting to hear that the 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 documentary, the business of being born, certainly implies that there are a lot of cesareans out there that don't need to happen. And what is without question is that by a country mile, we have a higher ratio of cesarean birth in the United States than any other country on the planet. Absolutely, we have thirty to thirty three percent cesarean rate in this country, and even by the World Health Organization standards, it should be fifteen percent or less. Doctor, and Greaves. most midwives. Go, sorry, Jane, most, go ahead. Most midwives probably have a five to seven percent cesarean rate. We're gonna we're gonna take another break in a minute, but and we're gonna take this patient caller on line three. Doctor Graves, why do you think this cesarean rate in the United States is like astronomical relative to I mean you have you have rates that are like five, ten times some of the other industrialized countries that have lower perinatal mortality rates. what's going on structurally? Yeah, that's a that's a fair question. I mean, I will point out that that hospitals track uh, cesarean section rates and try and keep those uh, under accepted guidelines. Um, and certainly, uh, you know, any hospital that was found to be doing cesarean sections unnecessarily would be subject to to review. Um, you know, why is the rate nonetheless higher in the United States compared to, to other other countries? Uh, I don't know the answer to that question, so I'm not going to make up an answer, but. Um, I would suggest that there is some selection bias. I mean, certainly Jan's patients who are um, giving birth at home, they typically have not had a prior cesarean section. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're young, they're healthy, they're uncomplicated. So, of course, the rates of cesarean section for her patients would be less than the rates overall uh, in the hospital setting, which which includes patients that are potentially higher risk or have had cesarean section in the past. All those patients are, of course, subject to monitoring as well. And so there's various indications. Again, I'm not an OBGYN physician, but there are various indications for a cesarean section, uh, some of which are emergent, some of which may not be. Um, but I, I don't honestly know why the rates are higher in the U.S. in, compared, in comparison to other countries. Part of the reason we wanted you on and not an OBGYN is that you could say these things that are affecting your insurance or whatever. We, something happened in the last few minutes, guys. We had a bunch of comments on this on, on this last discussion here. This is We must have... Uh, hit a nerve. We're going to have to take a break. We'll get to the caller. We'll get to some of these questions. We've got Jan Wolfenberg, a wonderful midwife who's helped over 1,000 births take place at home, and Dr. Peter Graves, who brings a perspective of as a physician in an emergency room environment, also as a hospital administrator, the business of medicine. Great discussion. We'll be right back on Equal Footing. I'm going to give out this number only one last time, so we've got a bunch of participation already. If you want to call in, 718-303-9090. If you want to text in a question or comment, that's 917-428-4062. We'll be right back.
School Footing with Dove Tuzman is sponsored by MDCS Dermatology, your experts in skincare. With two Manhattan locations and four offices in Long Island, including Plainview and Comac, the dermatologists and skincare surgeons at MDCS are proud to be affiliated with the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and New York Presbyterian Hospital. So schedule your next skin exam in one of MDCS's convenient New York area locations. To make an appointment, go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-DERM. That's 212-661-3376. You can even schedule a virtual video visit with MDCS's board-certified dermatologists from the comfort and safety of your own home. So go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-3376. And don't forget to mention Equal Footing for 15% off all cosmetic procedures. All right, you're back on Equal Footing. As always, it gets interesting near the end. We'll try to buzzsaw here. We're talking about home birth, unfettered birth some degree, less likely to be medically intervened, less likely to be for there to be a cesarean, uh, less likely for there to be pain medication. We're here with certified professional midwife, over a 1,000 births under her belt, Jan Wolfenberg, Dr. Peter Graves, graciously imparting his knowledge from, let's call it a traditional medical perspective. All right. Helsey, I don't know where you're from, Helsey, cool name, um, writes, this is obvious, shouldn't even be a question. The reason we have so many cesarean births in the United States is that insurance pays the doctors more. Dr. Graves, does that sound right to you? I have no doubt that any surgical procedure in the hospital is compensated by insurance more than a non-surgical intervention in most cases. Um, but again, I, I'm biased. I'm an allopathic physician. I'm an ethical person. Um, never in my career have I performed a procedure simply to make more money. Um, and I've performed, you know, many thousands of procedures on patients. No C-sections because I'm not an obstetrician gynecologist, but many procedures never it would have even occurred to me to, to perform an unnecessary procedure on a patient for more money. So I, I believe that, that most of my colleagues in the OBGYN field are probably like-minded, uh, very ethical people. And uh, I think that while it's valid to have that, that point of view, I, I don't think that compensation is the reason. Let, let me try for a diplomatic middle ground. And now we've got a couple callers waiting. I'm, I'm going to get to you. Please be patient. Uh, maybe, Jan, what's going on here is that insurance covers hospital births and of course it's you know you got to get people in and out and it's not like as as stark an ethical issue but insurance does not cover home birth right in the vast majority of cases even the home birth objectively systematically is much cheaper do i have that right well in states where there are yeah there are some places where insurance doesn't cover it um, so in states where midwives aren't licensed, they're less likely to get paid by insurance. But in 37 states where they are, they do get paid by insurance. Wow, I didn't so that's realize not that. Necessarily the only factor. Yeah. I guess New York. Lad, was that a factor in your in your decision? You haven't revealed on the on the program what your final decision was on home birth versus hospital birth. But was the, the financial was that a factor? The financial side of things. I have great insurance, so uh, no. But I will not reveal what my answer did, is. But did insurance cover the the? Would it have covered either option for you? It certainly would have covered the hospital route. Uh, and to be quite honest with you, I didn't pursue the 
midwifery uh, routes. From there. from that perspective, yes. okay. All right, let's take these. Let's take these callers. Uh, caller on line four from a nine one seven number. You're on the air. Hi, this is Michelle, and I've had two home births, so I thought I would give a little testimonial. Shoot, good to have you. And thank you so much. I've enjoyed the show. And I want to start by saying that I appreciate what both the doctor and the midwife are saying. They both sound wonderful. And I love the concept that no two births are alike. And I've had two home births, and they were distinctly different from one another. And the first one uh, was, like, highly medicalized, even at home. I had my membrane stripped. And um, so that was like an internal exam type experience. It was a little bit painful. And the result was a very long home birth that lasted 36 hours. And during that time, I received IV fluids. And uh, I gave permission for an episiotomy, but my midwife knew that that was not something I wanted. And since our vitals were uh, solid, she, she let me go without... Um, an episiotomy, hmm. and then I might have had some minor stitching at the end. The second one came so fast, it was accidental, unassisted, and I just want to say... And for our listeners, uh, sorry, Michelle, unassisted before. meaning, un, pardon the interruption, unassisted meaning you didn't have a midwife there either. The midwife was not present, and Could, so I sat time. with, correct, and I sat with the placenta for 40 minutes, but I want to say also that the reason I chose home birth was primarily the gentle care of the newborn. So I think a lot more emphasis should be placed on that in both settings, you know, in all settings. The gentle care of the newborn was very important to me, and I'm lucky that I received it. And there's something, like, called the breast crawl where the baby's allowed to just kind of find the breast. And there's all kinds of um, benefits, in my opinion, to home birth including, as you mentioned, this relaxed timeline. Michelle, so do, you, do you mind me asking how old were you for both of those births? Right. I was 36 at the first one and 39 at the second. Wow. And in the midwifery model, I was never really treated as, quote-unquote, geriatric. And those were your first um, births? Yeah, my first birth was 36 and my second was 39. Meaning you didn't have any hospital births prior? Correct. Um, however, I was with a hospital affiliated, I started with a midwife in Manhattan and I moved to a hospital affiliated midwifery practice that still seemed kind of over medicalized and domineering. You know, they didn't listen to my wishes. They laughed, you know, mm. things like that. Michelle, if you don't so, mind staying on the line for a second, you bring up a couple different issues and I want to, I want to, uh, bounce them around here. One is that you actually did have a, a medicalized component to a home birth. And I think a lot of people don't Correct. realize that's the case. Jan, in your practice, over a thousand births that you've attended, do, how often are you, do you have some form of medical intervention even at home? It varies a whole lot. And it's really, it, I will tell you from Michelle, what she was saying there, part of what was going on is it was her first baby. First babies take longer and they require more um, effort on everybody's part. And that can sometimes mean, you know, I'll give some examples that doesn't mean this would always happen, but the breaking up the bag of waters, 
or, um, you know, some Pitocin given after the birth to stop bleeding, all of those things, yes, they're part of a, a slightly more medical approach, but for the safety, well, especially the Pitocin, would be for the safety of the mom. Um, safety of the mom. Yeah. yeah. Safety of the mom, uh, yeah. n- and uh, Michelle, I want to thank you uh, again for your call. I'm going to try to, I, I dropped you because I would pick up another caller in a minute, but I, I do want to, uh, also address the issue of the bonding. And, and I appreciate Michelle's call because this is in a lot of the literature. I, to be fair, there haven't been random clinical studies around. It's very difficult to do that, but there are a number of observational studies about infant bonding. And, and you, you, so I'm seeing this a lot in the research. Jan, do you think home birth provides, as Michelle was positing, a distinct post-natal or post-birth um, bonding dynamic between yeah. mother and child, and why? Why is that different than what 100%, happens 100%, 100%, because we don't take the baby away. So the baby stays there with the mom. We don't have any place to take it. And so the baby's in the mom's arms. I mean, if we have to do anything momentarily for the baby, like give it a few breaths, or you know, if we have to do something for the mom in terms of bleeding, that's handled very quickly. And calmly, but it, we don't separate the baby from the mother. So there's nothing else for them to do but bond. Dr. Graves, what is your opinion on that? Do you see the same care for newborns and infants uh, in hospital births? Generally, I do. I appreciate the, the question. Generally, I do see that in the hospital. I think, you know, nowadays in most hospitals, the importance of, of that bonding um, between the, the baby and the mother is well recognized. That's supported by the literature, supported by the American College of, of OBGYN. Um, so in most hospital settings, you know, the baby, unless there's a medical reason to separate the, the, the baby from the mother, uh, the, the, the baby is put on the mother's breast immediately um, for that bonding to occur. So... You know, there are times, though, when that doesn't happen, of course, if, if there's fetal distress, if there's a need to secure an airway in the infant, if there's a need to do other more aggressive measures in the baby who's not breathing or, you know, doesn't have good what are called APGAR scores, which, um, you know, portend the, uh, the, the safety of, of, of the baby and the health of the baby. If, if certain criteria are met, the baby's taken away. But I think long gone are the days where the baby is whisked off to a nursery somewhere and, and the mother is left to recover in the room. So, so I, I certainly want Hundred percent respect the desire to keep that time between the baby and the mother, and I, I do agree that it's probably um, even more facilitated in a home birth situation. But it, it, it is well recognized and, and happens all the time in the hospital setting as well. Caller, please be patient. <laughs> I, I just I want to get to uh, Rifka from Queens, um, who says this seems obvious. You have less chance of vaginal tearing. You have less chance of an unnecessary epidural. You have less chance of unnecessary cesarean. You have the possibility of an orgasmic birth. I want one of you to explain what that means. One a possibility of an orgasmic birth. If you can do it and you're healthy, why on earth would you do anything but a home birth? Who wants to take that? Hmm. Well, <laughs> it's a layup for you, Jan. What do you say? What do you say, Doctor Graves? If you say, yeah. To to uh, to to for Queens, uh, Jan. I'm I'm gonna, I'm going to leave that one to you. That sounds uh, okay. Well, the word that expression, orgasmic birth, is you know kind of fraught with. Um, what is it? First of all, just so our listeners, well, are, we have probably some really confused listeners. It just means that you have a birth that is is very. Um, it's 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 just highly emotional and very much led organically by the woman's body. 
it, you don't have to have an orgasm. <sighs> Matter of fact, I've never seen it happen, but I've had plenty of births where women just very spontaneously delivered their babies. And but, but is it's pardon the interruption just to to because uh-huh, almost going no. on at a time. I think that there it's isn't it also isn't it referring to some sort of um, endorphin rush or something that is measured yeah. by medicine that occurs right after the birth that can kind of be muted yeah. by by if you have an epidural or something. Yeah. So well, yeah, that's true. So when a woman's in labor, I'll try to be quick. The um, hormones in her body are escalating, the, the oxytocin to make the contractions happen, and the endorphins to help match her level of pain to help her get through it. So when you get to the point where of both endorphins and oxytocin in your body that you'll ever have, and endorphins are like morphine, and oxytocin is the hormone that makes you fall in love. So this is nature's way of putting mothers and babies in a state where they will fall in love with each other. All right. We, I wish we had another hour. Caller on line three. You've been very patient. I hope you're still there. Some, yes. Hello. Guess who? I think you're Stan. Yes, I'm going to move quick because you're Please, running out of time. Running out of time. Shoot. Thanks for waiting. So, uh, the elephant in the room, and it has not been talked about. The long proper history of midwives is great, but there is a history of midwives doing abortions. And I'm not against abortion. I know my grandmother had a midwife. She told us that in the 20s and 30s, midwives, because doctors would not do it, were trained and could do it. Some were not trained. What's your question? Uh, Has she ever done an abortion? And what does she think about the possibility of midwives now because of laws passed against women? Midwives may be doing more abortions. All right. I appreciate the question. Uh, We've got, oh, getting more callers here. But Jan, quickly, what do you think about that? I've never done one. I've never done one, and I don't have any colleagues that I know of who've ever done one. Okay. We're going to run out of time. I see a couple uh, callers on the board. I'm sorry we're not going to get to you. Lots of questions here. Didn't realize this was such a, a topic of broad interest. Before we go, each, in literally 20 or 30 seconds, what do you each tell someone who is fresh to the issue and considering doing a home birth? What's your 20 or 30 seconds of top-line advice and input? Dr. Graves. It's an individualized process. Uh, make sure you meet the right selection criteria to have the lowest risk possible. I'm going to share a quick anecdote in 10 seconds. I, my wife and I are fortunate to have a lovely 12-year-old daughter. Uh, highly desired pregnancy, intrauterine insemination, very challenging, the best monitoring on the planet. And we're told all along that we were going to have a perfect seven and a half pound baby, um, only to find out that our Lovely daughter was 5 pounds, 11 ounces, had pathology in her umbilical cord and the placenta. We didn't know about it. And thankfully, she turned out wonderful. Uh, But my advice would be to make sure you get all the screening, make sure you meet all the right selection criteria, and then make a personalized choice. Jan, now you've got 20 seconds. What's your your advice? I don't don't advise. I tell them, look into the information, into the data, make the choice that's right for you. It's a very individual choice. I don't disagree with anything that Peter just said. Jan Wolfenberg, Dr. Peter Graves, thank you so much for joining. We'll have to come back and get to these callers we missed tonight. Thank you. Our pleasure. Thanks. Thanks.